This is Francis. Today we'll talk about Waco Shannon Hickey's book, Mind Cure, How Meditation Became Medicine, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. The introduction to this book starts by acknowledging the contributions of Dr. John Kabat-Zinn for his role in making possible the widespread popularity of the secularized kind of mindfulness practice that we live with today. If you haven't heard of Dr. Kabat-Zinn, he's the one who created the eight-week MBSR program. MBSR stands for Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. So the MBSR program was started way back in 1971 at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Dr. Kabat-Zinn then published a popular book called Full Catastrophe Living in 1991. He then founded a Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society, which trained hundreds of thousands of people in MBSR, and now there are MBSR training opportunities everywhere. I'm sure that even those of you who haven't studied Buddhism at all have therefore heard about mindfulness, maybe learned a bit about how to practice it, or certainly know people who do. And many of you are students in the Buddhism Psychology and Mental Health program, I know. The existence of that program has everything to do with this history of growing popularity of secularized mindfulness practice. And there are by now quite a few books that describe this history, including this one, Mind Cure. But this book starts before John Kabat-Zinn's first MBSR course in the 1970s, asking how did that happen and how did it become so wildly popular? This introductory chapter gives a quick overview of John Kabat-Zinn's approach to meditation training. Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. In the Pali Buddhist canon, which is a collection of texts from the earliest period of Buddhist writing, written in the language called Pali, the word that's usually translated as mindfulness is sati. In that context, in Pali, sati means something like remembrance or calling to mind. Like when your attention moves away from something you're trying to focus on, you remember to call it back to mind. In those kinds of early Buddhist texts, it's not really a technique or a practice by itself. It's just one of the basic mental capacities that we have that allows us to pay attention to things. The idea of focusing on the present or the idea of being non-judgmental are not part of this early Buddhist idea of sati. Kabat-Zinn's version of mindfulness is pretty different then, and he developed his interpretation of mindfulness in a specifically secular way for people who might be turned off by something Buddhist or something religious. As a scientist himself, he specifically wanted to develop a practice that would be acceptable in a Western medical environment. As Shannon Hickey puts it nicely, quote, He wanted to help sick people and suffering people become more involved in their own healing processes in a medical system that can be fragmented and dehumanizing. His approach to teaching, as he put it, Buddhist meditation without the Buddhism, was incredibly successful. And what's interesting, I think, is that his worries about the Buddhism part of meditation being off-putting to people were actually really well-founded. As Shannon Hickey describes, 
Since the mid-19th century, mainstream doctors have repeatedly tried and failed to quash unorthodox healing systems, sometimes by banning those practitioners from medical associations or by denying them licenses to practice. Still, though, despite those efforts by the mainstream medical establishment, so-called alternative healers have gradually become more and more accepted in North American society, and even more and more accepted by mainstream doctors. So people like chiropractic doctors or osteopaths, who used to be thought of as pretty fringe, are now well known for effective treatment of orthopedic or skeletal problems, for example, and they're often covered by insurance. Kabat-Zinn's version of mindfulness was developed to fit in alongside these kinds of practices. And to do this, it had to not be called religion. But one of the points of Shannon Hickey's book is that there were a lot of other people besides Kabat-Zinn who were promoting meditation practices to popular audiences in North America. And she talks about a number of other important meditation practices and teachers and institutions that help meditation hit the mainstream. And this book helps us understand how these things were happening even before the 1970s. Before we talk about that, though, let's just review some terms that she introduces that help us see how varied this all is. She says there are three groups that make up what we're talking about here. First are people who do so-called mind-body healing. These are people who want to help heal psychosomatic illnesses by trying to better understand the relationship between mental and physical states. So these are people like shamans, yoga teachers, Reiki masters, or Christian scientists. Within that category, there are people who do so-called mind-body medicine. These are people who work in the medical establishment, so like MDs or psychologists or clinical researchers. And another subset within the mind-body healing category are what she calls, quote, meditation as medicine people. These are people interested in the therapeutic uses of meditation, mindfulness, prayer, compassion training, or protocols like MBSR. So the mindfulness movement kind of sits at an intersection between mind-body medicine and meditation as medicine, all of which is within this larger category of mind-body healing. This larger category of mind-body healing, Shannon Hickey tells us, actually started more than 100 years before John Kabat-Zinn in the 1860s. It started with two religious movements, Christian science and something called New Thought. Those two things were close enough that they were sometimes called the mind cure movement. In the 1890s, some Asian Buddhist and Hindu missionaries started teaching some new thought leaders different kinds of meditation, which then started being taught in new thought churches themselves. Both new thought and Christian science became really popular across North America, and a lot of branches of them developed over time. In particular, there were some important African-American religious movements that were influenced by New Thought. Maybe you haven't heard of the movement called New Thought, but it's actually super influential and important to the topic of our course. Shannon Hickey explains that it's kind of a mishmash of different streams of Protestant, Buddhist, and Hindu modernism. As you'll remember from your early, earlier readings, modernist movements reinterpret traditional religious practices and ideas to fit in with certain contemporary and especially scientific perspectives on the world. They de-emphasize supernatural claims, they minimize rituals, and they emphasize rationality and science. They often also present religious teachings in psychological, philosophical, or ethical terms. 
New Thought teachings were like this, similar to how we studied mindfulness teachings as modernists also. As I mentioned, New Thought teachings were influenced by both Buddhist and Hindu traditions. Some New Thought teachers had studied yoga or meditation with missionary teachers from Asia. In the early days of the mind cure movement, so like from the 1870s to the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918, most of the mind cure leaders and practitioners were women. At a time when there weren't many options outside the home for women, this movement helped women build careers as counselors, healers, publishers, or public speakers. And many of these women were influential in suffrage activities, labor reform, marriage reform, and so forth. From the 1920s onwards, African-American New Thought groups promoted pride, respectability, and self-esteem to black men and women living under conditions of white supremacy. So to wrap up uh, my comments on this book's introduction, basically the book overall goes into more detail about this pre-1970 history of meditation as medicine and about how these ideas and practices that started out on the fringe of American religious communities ended up in mainstream medicine. I would really recommend the whole book if you're interested in this super fascinating story. But for now, let's skip ahead to chapter 5, which specifically talks about the contemporary mindfulness movement. Chapter 5 starts by reminding us when John Kabat-Zinn started his MBSR program in the 1970s, he was trying to develop a meditation program that was distanced from Buddhism, Hinduism, or any other kind of metaphysical religion that could be seen as flaky. To do this, he described mindfulness as having nothing to do with Buddhism. As Shannon Hickey says, he also argues the core teachings of Buddhism are transhistorical, transcultural, and universal, and can be extracted from their Asian cultural trappings. In this chapter, Hickey's going to ask whether the mindfulness movement can actually be called Buddhism or religion, and why this would matter. Actually, these questions are addressed in the next several chapters of this book, but we'll just get a preview of some of the arguments in this chapter. As those of you who are religion majors will already know, there's no fixed or agreed upon definition of religion. Rather, there are lots and lots of definitions, each one reflecting a particular theorist's interests and concerns and historical and cultural situation. Shannon Hickey reviews just a few of these in the first part of this chapter. First of all, Jeff Wilson, who wrote a book called Mindful America, says that the mindfulness movement is just another version of Buddhism that emerged when Buddhist teachings entered America. He's using a definition of religion that says to be a religion, something has to have creeds or beliefs, codes or ethical guidelines, ritual practices, and community. The theorist Thomas Tweed has another definition of religion. He says, religions are confluences of organic cultural flows that intensify joy and confront suffering by drawing upon human and suprahuman forces to make homes and cross boundaries. In other words, religions help orient people. They tell us who we are and where we are and when, where and when we are in space, time, and the cosmos. Mindfulness kind of fits in here too, right? It has a physical practice related to various philosophical and ethical beliefs, 
It's said to be about reducing suffering and enhancing joy. It could easily be seen as religion according to this definition too. Hickey then talks about another theory of religion by Ninian Smart, and I'll let you read about that by yourself. But here too, mindfulness does kind of sound like a religion. And then next she talks about yet another theory by Catherine Albanese. Let's go into that one a little more. By Albanese's definition, MBSR isn't just a component of complementary medicine as it is often claimed. It's really another kind of American metaphysical religion, which she says has four main characteristics. So American metaphysical religion, according to Albanese, has these four characteristics. First, a preoccupation with the mind and its powers. Second, a predisposition toward the ancient cosmological theory of correspondence between natural and spiritual worlds. Third, a tendency to describe these two in terms of movement and energy. And fourth, a yearning for salvation understood as solace, comfort, therapy, and healing. So does this sound to you like mindfulness? Let's see what Shannon Hickey says about each one of these four and how they might be seen in the mindfulness movement. The first one is easy. Since MBSR and other mindfulness-based interventions are totally concerned with the mind, MBSR interprets Buddhism in a totally psychological way. It's psychological transformation that produces better health. So what about the second category in Albanese's scheme, the predisposition to a theory of correspondence between natural and spiritual worlds? Shannon Hickey explains that in MBSR, the impermanence and interdependence reflected in our own bodies also corresponds to the impermanence and interdependence of all phenomenon. That's a fundamental Buddhist idea. So there's a critical correspondence between the body and the cosmos here in this way, also in most mindfulness teachings. The third criterion for metaphysical religion, according to Albanese, was the focus on movement and energy. Here too, we can see in MBSR or the mindfulness teachings that these teachings about meditation are helping us become more aware of flux and change. Our thoughts are constantly changing, the teachings tell us, and we should just sit there and notice that non-judgmentally. This is also, of course, a key Buddhist principle, that of impermanence. And finally, the fourth criterion uh, for Albanese is that metaphysical religions understood so-called salvation in terms of healing. And here, too, we can see this as a central component of the mindfulness movement. In this chapter, Waco Shannon Hickey is saying that it's possible to see the mindfulness movement, as she puts it, as a religious phenomenon, a modernist, globalized, metaphysical one, which draws upon scientific discourse to validate its claims. The next part of this chapter then moves on to ask whether mindfulness can be considered a form of Buddhism or not, despite John Kabat-Zinn's claim that it has nothing to do with Buddhism. First of all, many people who write about early Indian Buddhism have reminded us that sati, the Pali word that we usually translate as mindfulness, isn't a kind of meditation practice. Rather, it's a kind of mental faculty that helps us develop skills and practices that lead to nirvana. The other four mental faculties in this group are faith, energy, concentration, and wisdom. 
It seems that the first person to translate sati as mindfulness was a British scholar, Rice Davids, in 1881. The mental faculty of sati can be strengthened by various various practices, including by noticing the breath or other bodily sensations, plus by methods like observing decaying corpses or thinking about one's body as a bag of repulsive waste products. So sati is just one small part of a whole complex of Buddhist practices, which are described as the Eightfold Path of Practice, which is itself the fourth of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. It's part of a full training program that involves moral conduct, cultivation of wisdom, and meditation. Sati has a special purpose in Buddhist practice to help the practitioner to identify Buddhist values and worldviews and correct oneself to be more in alignment with them. I would encourage you all to read this section carefully. Especially for those of you who have studied Buddhism quite a bit, you'll see how sati or mindfulness is totally embedded within Buddhist practice and thought overall. You'll see Shannon Hickey move from early Indian Buddhism to Mahayana Buddhism, and how what we think of as mindfulness meditation does or doesn't play a role in these new forms of Buddhism. You can also read more about how some scholars and contemporary practitioners of Buddhism have criticized the mindfulness movement for being removed from its original religious contexts, secularized and instrumentalized. And you can read about how John Kabat-Zinn has actually been strongly influenced by many Buddhist and also Neo-Vedanta teachers by his own admission in various places. And so his claim that MBSR is non-Buddhist really does seem disingenuous. It seems pretty clear, really, that this is a modernist metaphysical form of Buddhism that's a product of a very particular historical and religious circumstance, as Shannon Hickey says. So now that you've been oriented to this um, chapter with my brief summary, I hope you can read the chapter yourself more carefully, and you might want to keep reading in this book too. I'd like to end by drawing your attention to the final sentence in this chapter. Waco Shannon Hickey says, quote, Rather than being universal, transcultural, and transhistoric, Kabat-Zinn's Dharma is actually a particularly modern American blend of Buddhism, Neo-Vedanta, and American metaphysical religion, whose priests and evangelists are frequently clinical scientists. Not incidentally, many of them are also white men with credentials from major research universities. Finally, I'll summarize the questions that you'll be asked to reflect on later after you've done your reading and study of this unit. First of all, how was your understanding of Buddhist modernism enhanced or expanded by this set of readings and or by the interview that you listened to with Waco Shannon Hickey? Second, do you feel convinced that the mindfulness movement fits within Albanese's theory of religion or any of the other theories talked about in chapter five? Do you see any flaws with this? Third, did this week's materials change your own perspective on mindfulness as you have experienced it or as you know of it yourself? Finally, on page 169, there are some comments about dialogue in a quote by Linda uh, Hoyman. She's talking here about a dialogue between modern Western and traditional Buddhist worldviews, But if you think about these comments, plus our earlier discussions about cultural reappropriation, 
in light of the speaking out and listening in exercise that you've done as an assignment for this course, does this make you think anything different or new about that exercise? I look forward to hearing your responses to these questions. Thank you.